0: Of your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Exodus chapter 20, looking at verse 17, finishing up our series going through the Ten Commandments that we've been in for these last 10 weeks. The 10th commandment this morning, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, <clears throat> it says this You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. In a season one episode of The West Wing, which I think I've mentioned a few times at this point, uh, is one of my favorite TV shows. There is a fictional situation that they come across where a town in Alabama is trying to abolish all laws except for the Ten Commandments. And it's a running gag throughout that episode that people are told about this happening, they're told about that prospective law in the town, they're told about the town's plan, and then they react to it. And they all do the same thing. Every person who hears it, they stop, they think for a second, and then every one of them, they say, coveting thy neighbor's wife is going to cause some problems. No one really knows how you could possibly enforce that command. How do you stop someone from doing it? How do you know when someone has done it? As we'll see, this 10th and final commandment in our series is actually pretty unique. One of the books that I read this week in study made the case that you shall not covet is the 10th commandment, because when you break this one, you've also broken all nine of the others. The covetous man, he has more gods than one. One God isn't enough to satisfy him. The things he desires, those are his gods. He's an idolater. He worships the image of his other gods in the things that he covets. He takes God's name in vain by invoking him, by invoking God as a means to the end of his covetous desires. There's no rest for him in his pursuit of stuff, of whatever that thing is that he's coveting. Not even the Sabbath rest. so he breaks the fourth command. A covetous man, he would dishonor his family if it meant what, that he got what he wanted. He would even kill for it. He'd break the sixth commandment in a heartbeat. You can't covet your neighbor's wife without committing adultery against yours. Coveting leads to theft, as we'll see, the, the Eighth Commandment. And just as false witness is against your neighbor, so is coveting. You desire to take what is rightfully his. You desire to make false what is true about him and his stuff. Coveting isn't a lesser command. It's not an afterthought. It's actually a mother's sin, giving birth to the rest that we've looked at in this series. God told us not to sinfully desire what belongs to our neighbor. And we'll examine God's command not to covet by answering the same four questions that we have for all 10 of our commandments that we've covered to this point, including today. Number one, why is coveting wrong? Why should we obey this command not to covet? Question number two, how do we break this commandment? What does that look like to covet? Question number three, how has Christ fulfilled or transformed this commandment? And then question number four, why do we, or how uh, do we obey this command now? What do we do to obey this command today? So let's begin with our first question today. Why is it wrong to covet? Why should we obey this command specifically? But before we really get into that, because coveting isn't language that we typically use. I think I need to clarify what the verse is actually saying. I have to talk a little about about what it is to covet. What's the definition of coveting before I can explain why God is telling us not to covet? Because most of you probably haven't said covet in your entire life as often as I have in these first two minutes or so of this sermon. But if you just Google it, what it will say is that to covet is to yearn to possess or have something. But I actually think we need to be a little bit more precise than Google is. That's not as precise as we need to be here. Desire, simply wanting something, that's not automatically the problem. I mean, when I'm thirsty and I yearn to possess or have water, I don't think I'm in sin. So biblical coveting isn't just wanting something. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said that there are two senses of coveting in the Bible. One, coveting is an insatiable desire of getting the world. That it's not simply that you want something, it's that you always want something. That you're never satisfied. And the thing that you want is a thing of the world. You have an insatiable desire of getting what is around you in this realm. The, The other sense, the second sense, is an inordinate love of the world. So you're coveting if there's always a next thing that you want in this world. So coveting is closely related to greed here. But you're also coveting if you love this world more than you should. Even if you aren't desiring to get more of it. If you're simply satisfied with this world. If you're satisfied by the things that are around you. Even if you're not always looking to the next thing. That's still sinful coveting. Because you're satisfied by the wrong thing. We'll talk more about what that looks like for us in a moment. But now that we have a basic understanding of what coveting is, what the word means, we can examine why it's something we shouldn't do. We shouldn't covet because coveting leads to theft. And ultimately, coveting leads to death. I mentioned a few weeks ago in the Eighth Commandment that stealing, taking what isn't yours, is simply the final action in the chain that sprouted from the seed of coveting. You begin with coveting and you end in theft. No one steals something that they haven't already coveted. So just as anger is the source of murder, covetousness is the source of theft. It's a bad root with a bad end, a bad fruit. So it's wrong. But the problem is larger, deeper than just that it leads to another sin, as serious as that is. Coveting in and of itself is enough to lead to spiritual death. When Christ gave the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, he talks about seed which is sown among the thorns. That's one of the seeds that the, the sower throws out. It lands among the thorns. Then the thorns grow up and they choke out the seed. They keep it from growing. They keep it from bearing fruit. And when he's explaining that same parable later in that chapter to his disciples, he says this in Matthew chapter 13, verse 22. He says, As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches chokes the word and it proves unfruitful. So, did you catch that? This person, this soil in which the seed has landed, is the one where the seed of the gospel is planted, but it never grows, it never bears fruit. Because the thorns, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, they choke the word. They prove it to be unfruitful. The seed would have borne fruit were it not for the cares of the world, were it not for an inordinate love of the world, the insatiable desire for the things of the world. Coveting is what kept that person, that soil, from bearing fruit. What's what kept that person from truly becoming a Christian? from having any confidence that they actually have the truth of the gospel within them. Coveting is enough to lead to spiritual death in and of itself. It's a serious posture of the heart. It's not simply a harmless desire to have a home. It's wrong, and it's wrong because it comes from discontentment. It comes from thinking that what you have, no matter how much that is, is never going to be enough. And I don't think God is here demonizing simply just capitalistic drive. I don't think he's demonizing an industrious spirit, someone who wants to go out and achieve, to earn. What he's simply pointing out is that when your default position, when the posture of your heart is more, then that never stops. There's always more. Once discontentment has set in, once you cannot be content with what you have, you must have something else, something more, then it eventually takes a new perspective to root it out. There's always a new car. So a new car is never going to actually fill that hole. Coveting ultimately takes the position, because it chooses sinful desires and insatiable greed over God and his provision, it takes the position that God is a poor giver. They guess he closed the lilies of the field, but he somehow neglected you. He doesn't have enough to offer to satisfy you, to meet your needs. It's not just wrong because of what it leads to or even what it reveals about you. It's wrong because of what it says about God. Coveting is wrong because it denies that the creator God is also the good giver of life and breath and everything to his people. So that's why it's wrong. But what does it look like to covet? How do we break this commandment today? Well, I already mentioned the the clearest way, the, the definition of coveting, that we break this command when we have an insatiable desire of getting the world, when we always want more of the world, that we can never be satisfied with it, or when we have an inordinate, a larger than it should be love of the world. Even if it satisfies us, even if we aren't asking for more, if that was enough to fill us, that in and of itself is a wrong and coveting desire. But in the context of our verse, you'll notice that part of what it reveals it to be coveting rather than simply desiring, rather than simply wanting, is that it belongs to someone. It's your neighbor's house. That's his wife. Those are his servants, his animals. You're not supposed to covet anything that already belongs to him, So coveting and greed are closely related, but so are coveting and envy. You wish you had his setup. You wish you had his home. If only she hadn't married him, then he would have been an option for you to marry rather than who you're stuck with now. If only you could take their worker from them because they just don't know how good they have it with servants like that, with employees like that. Their new Dodge Burrow puts your old rundown Pontiac mule to shame. You don't just want stuff like theirs. You want their stuff. You don't even care if that means it comes at their expense. I mean, as long as you're better off, you don't really care if they're worse off because you took it from them. That kind of coveting, that kind of envy breaks this commandment. But as I mentioned, I think earlier, it can also be broken not by just actually committing this sin, not by just the act of coveting, You don't have to be actively plotting against someone else's promotion to be coveting. I think it actually starts way back here in discontentment. It doesn't have to reach the point where you're ready to steal his wife before you've already arrived at a broken commandment. It begins way back here when you stopped loving and appreciating your wife, your husband, the the freedom for kingdom advancement that comes from your singleness. It was already wrong before you thought about how nice it would be to take their spouse from them. You were pre-coveting when you stopped thinking about how nice it is to have yours. And that kind of anti-gratitude, that kind of discontentment is really the root of all kinds of problems. And when it's someone else, it's so easy for us to see this, right? It's so, so easy for us to see, hey, why don't you just appreciate what you have when it's someone else who isn't appreciating what they have? I can see that they should appreciate it more. But whenever it's you, it's a lot of times hard, hard to see this. My wife and I have been re-watching The Last Dance. It's a, a documentary about Michael Jordan that, that ESPN made a few years ago. Uh, we rewatched it because we saw the movie about shoes that came out with Michael Jordan, and I said, okay, now we got to rewatch watch the Michael Jordan documentary. And I'm baffled every time I think about it. At the, within every episode, they allude to this. Because what ended the Chicago Bulls dynasty of the 90s wasn't another team that came along. There wasn't another team that came and beat them and was better than them. And that's what ended the Bulls' dynasty. No, it was the guys in charge. It was the general manager and the owner. The Bulls won six championships in eight years. They won three in a row. Michael Jordan retires, and they lost two. He came back, and then they won three in a row again. And in the midst of all of that happening in the midst of all of that crazy success that they had, the general manager got it in his head that he wanted to rebuild the team. He had the greatest dynasty of all time, the greatest team ever assembled, around the greatest player to ever play, and he legitimately had this thought going through his head at that time. He said, I bet if we get rid of all these players, and we get rid of all these coaches, and we replace them with different ones, I bet we'll win a championship. I bet we'll be a good team. If I could just get rid of all these guys that keep winning, I could replace them with different guys who will still win. I bet I could do that. You see, that's not just discontentment, or that, that is just discontentment. That's all it is. He simply got it in his head that what he had wasn't enough. And we can see how silly that is whenever it's not us, right? What do you mean you want to put together a team to win championships? You did that. You're doing it right now. They just won three in a row. They're they're doing it. You already have what you say you're wanting to get. But in your pursuit of that thing, whatever that thing is, you're blowing up all the greatness that's right in front of your face you simply stopped seeing it. you stopped appreciating it for what it is. So whenever it comes to coveting, wanting that thing, whatever it is, so much that you're willing to take it from someone else, whenever that happens, the problem begins way back here. When you stopped seeing the greatness that you already had, when you stopped loving and appreciating the wife you already had, who bore your children, who married you when you were 15 years dumber than you are right now, that was already a problem before you started messaging your coworker who's recently divorced. Coveting often looks like discontentment for us. And all of this usually works itself out from an inordinate focus on the world, that second aspect of coveting that we talked about. Whether her husband or his car or their money or that power, coveting reveals that your focus, your primary thought, the driving motivation in all of your desires... Are the things of the world. What you have is a worldly, a material mindset that simply places too high a value on all this stuff that's going to die with you, rather than the things of heaven, the things of God, spiritual things. Paul was getting at this idea in a verse I'm sure you've heard before, 1 Timothy 6.10. He said, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. You see, the craving, the love of money, that's what leads to all kinds of evils. That coveting leads to all kinds of trouble for you, the one who's doing the coveting. It might even cause you to wander from the faith or to pierce yourself with many wounds many terrible desires, the terrible fruit of the terrible seed that is your discontentment and coveting. If your first thought in all things is something worldly, something material, then I think you're trapped in a mindset of coveting, whether you realize it or not. If you think of the bottom line before you think of the people that it represents, I think you're probably a covetous person if you come into a bunch of cash and you think about how cool that new boat is going to be, but it never really occurred to you to tithe on that, to give any of that away, to help your family with that, to do something that really needed to be done with that, not even going above and beyond to fund the advancement of God's kingdom, not even just to to write the whole check over because it's just free money, but even just a normal baseline of, wait a second, maybe there's a reason I've been given this even just you chucking some pennies God's way or your family's way, I think that's what someone who's coveting probably looks like. In some ways, telling you how to break this command is actually more difficult than the rest because it's the only one of the Ten Commandments that just straight up doesn't have an outward act associated with it. I mean, you can have an idol in your home and break a commandment. You can go to another God's temple and then you've broken the first two. You can speak God's name in vain. You can work on the Sabbath. You can murder. You can adulterate. You can steal. You can lie. We can see these things. We can prove these things. They're tangible. Even if you've only broken them in your heart, as we've talked about. But coveting, in its purest form at least, is only in the heart. It's only inward. It's the only commandment that you can break as obviously and directly as possible, and no one will have any idea. Your face doesn't have to change an ounce to think, man, I wish I had a servant like that. Must be nice. And here, I thought God didn't play favorites, but he gave them all that good stuff. No one else has to see you thinking that. No one else has to know that you think that. But I think God gave us this commandment and gave it to us last as a reminder of how often we break the other nine. Even if no one knows about those either. He gave it to us as the tenth so that no one can get to the end of the list and claim to be innocent now that we've gotten into the realm of thought crime. And once that seal is broken, once you remember, once you realize that you've broken the Ten Commandments, I think it starts to help you remember all the times, all the ways that you've fallen short of the other nine as well. We're coveters. We want what they have. We're envious. We're greedy. We're discontent. And we're worldly. We're material people. But knowing that should simply remind us of all the ways that Jesus isn't those things. Which brings us to our third question. How has Christ fulfilled or transformed this command for us? Well, just like theft, very similar to theft, he's fulfilled it because it's actually impossible for him to covet. I mean, all things are already his. So just like by definition, he can't steal, he also can't covet. From whom is he wishing he had something else? He is entirely self-sufficient in himself as God. He doesn't need anything. He's not served by human hands. He lacks for nothing. So there's no desire for him to have that needs to be met. There's nothing that he could possibly want, which he doesn't already possess. And then also, just like theft, he hasn't taken from us. He isn't taking from his people. He isn't wanting what we have. He's not pining after anything that we might be able to give him. But instead, he has given us all things. I mean, he gave us the gift of himself as a man on this planet, gave us the gift of himself to take our human nature to himself so that he might redeem our human nature from our sin so that he might be obedient in that even to the point of death even to death on a cross he gave us that gift so that through his sacrifice on the cross we now can receive from him life and peace joy satisfaction in him He didn't do all those things that he'd get more from us he did all those things so that he could give more of himself to us he's given us so much more than we could ever know so much more than we could ever need he's given us the fullness of himself he's given us enough to fill every desire that we might have and even more so abundantly more than we could ask or think he leaves us overflowing with his essence he leaves us lacking nothing Needing to covet nothing that we don't already possess in Him. Which I think brings us to our fourth and final question today in our series, Through the Ten Commandments. What do we do now? How do we obey this commandment now as New Testament Christians in light of who Christ is and what He's done? I'll give three closely related ways. First, I think we can obey this command not to covet, By pursuing contentment. I mean, if discontentment is the the root of the fruit of coveting, then contentment has to be the opposite of coveting. The man who is content in all things never covets. So here, we're not simply trying to white knuckle our way out of coveting, we're not just trying to tell ourselves to stop coveting. We're pursuing a better substance to replace that desire. What I mean by that is that we don't just stop having those desires and then hope that they'll go away. We actually replace those hopes, we replace those wants with something else. In this case, for our first way not to covet, we replace that desire with what's already there, with what we already have. That's contentment. It's focusing on what's there, what's right in front of you. The team that has already won six NBA titles rather than focusing on the possibility of what could possibly be there in its place. And I think when contentment is truly found, it can be held onto, no matter what it is you currently have or what you currently don't have. Philippians 4, verses 11 and 12 say this, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You see, Paul was writing from prison whenever he said those words, he was writing in persecution when he said those words. And he was saying that his circumstances have no effect on his joy, have no effect on his contentment. That he's learned in whatever circumstance, whatever situation he is, to be content. And that's hard to find. It's hard to cultivate in and of itself. But you simply can't covet and be content at the same time. So we obey this command by pursuing contentment to ensure that we never covet. And in order for that to happen, I think you have to have a healthy view of possessions. A healthy view of the things of this world as a stewardship. Really, you have to understand the second way that we obey this command today, by storing up treasures in heaven rather than treasures here on earth. So this is an even further step up the stream in fighting covetousness. We might do that most directly by being content rather than coveting, but that contentment I think has been born out of a spiritual perspective, out of a heavenly perspective out of reminding ourselves that we are not worldly materialists. We are heavenly spiritualists. We don't simply pursue contentment and think that that's the only way that we can get around coveting. We see that even the root of contentment comes from a right perspective which sees heaven as actually more real than the world that surrounds us right now. That's how we get there. Jesus encouraged us to to think of uh, of our world in this way, to have this kind of focus and perspective away from our stuff. He told us that in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, it says this, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see that one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of your stuff. He's giving us, he's instilling in us a new value system. He's replacing our focus on our earthly stuff and he's directly connecting that anti-material mindset to your fight against covetousness. We may be living in a material world, but you don't actually have to be a material girl. That's not how it has to work. You do have another option, this kind of heavenly perspective. But grace upon grace, he doesn't just say stop. He doesn't just say quit it. He doesn't just say you're coveting, that's wrong. He doesn't just say not to covet, to, to not hold too high a value on earthly things. He actually offers, he actually gives a better alternative. He replaces that misordered and unfulfilling, ultimately unsatisfying desire with a better option, with a greater reward. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, he's not taking away the good stuff you've got and telling you that you should be okay without it. He's not taking away the good stuff you've got and telling you that you shouldn't have been asking for more. He's actually pointing out that the good stuff you think you have isn't as good as you think it is. He's actually trying to give you something better than anything that you might hold on to right now. He's pointing out that all this stuff that you covet, it's just simply not as good as you think it is. The cars rust out. The homes always have that one cabinet drawer that opens into the fridge or something. You can't get it all the way in. You don't understand why the builder would have ever possibly situated at in that situation. No one has ever built something new and not found something that they wish they had done differently just six months later. Uh, I would have put that closet actually here. That would have been a better layout. That would have been a better situation. Her husband, as great as he may seem, he probably likes a lazy Saturday just as much as yours does. And all of those things, Everything I just listed, everything you can think of in your head right now that you might be able to hold on to in this world, all of those things can be taken from you. And even what lives up to the hype, even what doesn't get taken away in this world, even those things that you die with, it's still stuck in this earthly realm. You're not taking it with you. No one having a heart attack is wishing that they had more cash on them. No one's thinking, I bet there's a vending machine in the waiting room of heaven, and I've got to make sure that I've got some change. No. It's just going to be sitting there in your pocket. That's it. That bank account is just going to get taken by the government or your relatives or whatever. You can't take it with you. It's not following you there. But there is a place where moths don't go. There's a place where oxygen doesn't rust. There's a treasure that can't be taken away. And there's a place where all that greatness exists, where all that greatness actually does live up to the hype. So Christ, by reminding you of that truth, by giving you that heavenly perspective, by telling you to stop focusing on the stuff that you see and start thinking about the stuff you can't see, whenever he does that, he's not taking away your good stuff. He's pointing out that what you think is a steak dinner is actually spam from the can. And he's showing you there's a much better way. There's a much better gift that he has to give you. And I think that's how we stop coveting. We store our treasures in heaven. We pursue his better way, his greater gifts. Which means, ultimately, the third way that we can avoid coveting, we find our fullest satisfaction in him means our desires are changed, means our appetites are different, so that we now don't find our highest desire to be met in our stuff. In cookie-cutter mansions now or the ones over at Hilltop in heaven, we find our greatest needs, our fullest joy and satisfaction, that they are filled in the one from whom all those things flow. This world around us doesn't just magically grow strangely dim. No, the the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace when we turn our eyes upon Jesus. When we are most satisfied in him, when we glorify him and enjoy him forever, I think that's when we discover that we actually have no need to covet anything else. We have no use for whatever else someone else might have because we found that the fullest pleasure, the fullest joy and satisfaction, that all of our desires have been met in the God who created us, the God who loves us, and the God who saved us. I think that's how we stop coveting. I think that's how we avoid discontentment. We pursue contentment which is actually possible for us when we have a rightly ordered value system that holds the heavenly things to be of infinitely more value than the material things. The spiritual things as more valuable than our worldly material things. And what we do is we replace all those lesser desires that we might covet over. All those things, all that stuff, all those people, all that status, all that power, the cars, the people, the dollars. We replace all of that with the true joy and the satisfaction that is only found and only filled in him. It's my hope that this series through the Ten Commandments has shown you the glory of God in giving these commandments to us. I hope we've seen why we should obey each command, that it's actually for our good to do those things, that it actually speaks a better word by you obeying the commandments. I hope that we've been convicted of sin. I hope that every week you've walked away going, yep, I broke that one. Yep, he got me. Every time. I keep thinking, I, nope, never murdered anybody, and then he comes in with this anger thing. I hope you've seen your sin. As ugly, as terrible as it possibly is. I hope you've been shown all the ways that we fall short, even of a short list of pretty obvious stuff, Right? Like, do not murder is a pretty universal law that all societies have mostly had. And we can't even really fulfill that one. So then I hope that you've also seen Christ as the perfect fulfillment of the law. The one who obediently lived the life that you had no chance of living. The one who was upholding all the commands that you ignored. The one who paid to transform them for you so that you are no longer under this law. You're no longer guilty before it. You're no longer someone who has broken all 10 commandments. When God looks at you, if you are in him, if you are united to Christ, he looks at you and says, Christ fulfilled them. It doesn't matter that you broke them. Christ fulfilled it in your place, on your behalf. Therefore, now when I look at you, I don't see someone who has broken all 10 commandments. I see the beauty and perfection of Christ in your place. That's how, whenever we understand the law rightly, it inevitably leads us to the glory, the grace, the goodness of God. You can see that you're no longer under this law and guilty before it, but you're free from the law. You now live a life under grace. And the life that you live now under grace, you can live so that you might love and glorify him. You might enjoy him forever. And I think it will maintain that focus. If we'll remember that perspective, we'll be able to see, to remember how much grace and glory is given to us, even in a simple list of rules, 10 things not to do, written in stone. We'll see his gospel, we'll see his glory really and truly when we learn how to look at his law correctly. It's my hope that we've done that. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for your glory revealed in these commandments. Thank you for your grace that we are no longer held accountable to them because we know we're a people who break them all the time. Thank you for your goodness in giving us all things that we have. Help for us to see that, to be reminded of that, for us not to be focused on the worldly, the here and now, for us not to be focused on more, but rather to be focused on the gratitude that should flow from what we've been given. And even more so, focus on the goodness of the giver of those things. Help us to be a people who pursue contentment actually, actually, actively. Help us to be a people who have a right perspective, who remember that our treasures are stored in heaven, not here not on earth. Help us to be a people who are satisfied, finally, truly, and deeply in who you are and what you've done for us. We love you and we thank you, even in giving us a list that we can never keep. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Stand with me as we say.